Hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome back to the Mike Force Podcast. It's your host, Mike G. Let's talk about these Idaho murders. Insane that this took place. Insane. So we have four students that were killed in Moscow, Idaho, because they were murdered in their sleep by somebody with a knife. Multiple stab wounds per victim. Victims were on the second and third floor of this apartment, this house, and two roommates survived. I believe they were on the first floor. Now, the damaging thing for Moscow's police department is they originally came out, I believe, just days after the murder and said the public is safe. And this was a targeted attack, which is their statement, and everything's under control, except no suspect, nobody came uh, out and said, we have somebody we're looking at, a person of interest, a suspect, or an arrest is being made. Then they came back and recanted their statement and said, hey, we didn't mean the public is safe because the public is not safe. And so a lot of people are confused by the communication or the PR aspect of this. And that's a debacle. I mean, one of the things about the Moscow Police Department is the Moscow Police Department, I believe since 2017, hasn't seen a murder between 2017 and 2021. Not to say that they're incompetent, but they don't even have a communications officer, supposedly, or somebody that's focused on PR. They had to bring somebody in, I believe, from the state. Um, if you're listening to this or you're watching this on YouTube, leave your comments below to kind of refine this picture for people if you're closer to the investigation or the understanding of what took place. So here's what happened. You got four victims, a male and three females. The male was sleeping over because he's the boyfriend of one of the females. And then you have two more additional females. Somewhere between 2 in the morning and 11 in the morning, because the phone call was made to 911 to dispatch at 1130-ish, um, which the police department, the Moscow police department, hasn't released the audio nor the transcripts of that call because they said it would affect their investigation. Now, they came out early on and said it was a targeted attack. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means deliberately somebody planned to do this. It wasn't in haste. It wasn't a random act of violence. It was targeted. Now, what's the information or evidence to that? They haven't released it. So if you have somebody who's targeting somebody and they kill uh, the targeted person or persons, it's unusual to have multiple people that are murdered um, because they're just there. Right. If somebody's targeting somebody, I mean, usually they don't you don't target multiple people um, unless it's an act of rage. And, you know, the, the gunman goes in and just starts shooting the place up, especially with a knife. Now, imagine the crime of passion that's involved with a knife, how close to the victim or to the people that you're murdering, how crazy that is. Right. So somebody goes in. And let's just say they're targeting the male and the female, or just say the male, because the female is probably laying in the same bed, and they go to attack that person with a straight blade knife, which according to the police department is what they're looking for as the murder weapon. Man, that act of violence is very up close and personal and tells you a different situation when it comes to the psychology and the intent of that suspect. So they murder the person, and supposedly there's... Uh, whether it's one victim or multiple victims that have defensive wounds, meaning 
they weren't sleeping when they were when they were killed. They were sleeping when they were stabbed. And then they woke up and then they try to defend their life. So they go to do that. Let's just say uh, making the assumption that they're targeting the couple or the man. They go to kill the guy. The woman next to them in the bed is you know, wakened, awoken by the person who's being stabbed next to them, and then they get defensive wounds as well. But the fact that that wasn't the end of it, you know, who knows the timeline of how this chronologically took place. If they, if the couple, which I don't know, was on the third floor, and they went to the second floor, and then went to murder uh, who they thought was the male or the female, and then they killed them, and then they go, oh, that's the wrong person because we meant, we meant to target the male and the female. And then they move on methodically through the house with nobody waking up on the first floor. The two uh, surviving women, supposedly, according to the, to the uh, uh, press release through the media, I am assuming coming from the police department, the two girls that survived were on the first floor. So they weren't stirred by the commotion and then that person went on to another room, and then what I assume is another room, unless the two uh, girls slept in the same room, which I don't think they did. I think they slept in different rooms. So three separate instances where a person with a knife goes into a room and murders the people that are in there with nobody hearing a thing. And then supposedly at 11-something in the morning, uh, a dispatch uh, gets notification through 911 uh, from what's being told by the police department as people who are in the house, which sounds like to me more than just the actual roommates. And they haven't released that because they said it, they want to protect the uh, investigation. That's kind of odd to me. That, that kind of stands out to me. Why would they not release that? And the details of the suspect that they think deliberately targeted them comes from, they declared evidence they found. And they don't want to affect the investigation by telling that evidence. Now, where they screwed up from the get-go is saying that the public was safe. How is the public safe if you don't have a suspect, if you don't have uh, somebody in custody? Um, how, is this, how, is it, how is the public safe? They're not safe. And then they recanted that statement, came back and said, hey, the public actually isn't safe. you got to be vigilant. So very scary for the people, especially the students of Moscow, Idaho, a small town in the middle of Idaho. So uh, where are we at with this? We're, we're, we're at a place where we're weeks after the attack. Not a lot of information came out. And then the press release uh, was done yesterday where they finally came out and said what they had to say and answered a few questions. One of the last questions asked by a, a, an intelligent reporter was, hey, what can the public do to be safe? If you're not giving information, then what can they do to be safe? And their answer was nothing. I mean, they didn't even give an answer. They just said, hey, yeah, this sucks and moved on. I'm parastorying there. But it's like, what can you do in this kind of case? Well, you know, one, I think the police haven't got ahead of messaging and communication to uh, uh, the public and made a clear um, case for why they're not giving information. Two, I think it's a mistake early on. I mean, I'm not a police officer. I have a degree in criminal justice and, and train law enforcement officers. But I just think I can't uh, really think of many cases in many instances where withholding information, at least the understanding of that uh, investigation is going to benefit the police department, 
the the community and not warrant the community jumping to assumptions. Like I heard the communi- uh, communications officer that was designated say, well, we haven't come out because we don't want people to jump to conclusions or jump to assumptions. Well, what do you think is going to happen when you don't communicate what's going on? They're going to jump to assumptions. So why not get ahead of it because you're a public law enforcement officer and communicate, hey, this is where we're at. This is where we're going. Here's some facts of the case that we need to to make the public understand. And here's what we know and don't know. Just that alone is information the public should know. I mean, withholding the uh, important aspects of the investigation, I get that. But not communicating at all or saying, yeah, the public is safe. And when they're not safe, that's that's not a good path. And that's not a good look. And they know that. Uh, they're already getting hammered for it now, which is why they brought in uh, investigators from the FBI and the state of Idaho to assist in the investigation. I've ever heard them say, like, the governor's allocated a million dollars in the investigative process. Uh, I, yeah, I don't understand. So what can you do in this case? Well, number one, there is somebody who's on the loose who they know is a a potential suspect, and that is a danger to the public. One thing you could do is be situationally aware. It's something that we teach uh, at Fieldcraft Survival, my company, and it's also something that I teach. Hell, I just read and proofed the chapter on situational awareness for the book Prepared that's coming out by Penguin Random in June. So some of the things that I outline in the book are situational awareness is just paying attention to your environment. It's that easy. But because we're complacent, because we're lazy, because we're soft, because we want convenience as a part of our everyday routine, we disconnect from that connection that naturally keeps us safe, and we don't stay focused on our environments. So we miss a lot of things that are spikes in the pattern of behavior that should stand out to us. And then we're so lazy, we just blow it off. Like, why is that Why is that guy looking and stalking me or following me? Uh, it must just be an anomaly. No, it's there for a reason because it's part of your primal instincts to survive, and you should pay attention. Keep it in the back of your mind, but have a plan of action to be able to react to that circumstance by being situational aware. Lock your doors. Use closed circuit uh, uh, and sensors whether it's a home alarm system, game cams, linked to SMS, whatever it is. I use Vivint in my house, and no, I'm not sponsored by Vivint, but I want an integrated security system set up in my house to give me better situational awareness. Basic things, like a storm door. Why do you have a storm door? Not just to protect your door from storms, but to give a second barrier of defense. Uh, Why don't you have a gate around your yard? Maybe you have a third barrier of defense. Maybe you have a ring or a vivid camera that's going to provide technical surveillance to give you an early warning to what's going on. Um, Basic stuff like paying attention to your doors, your windows, and making sure they're locked. Um, Walking the perimeter of your house to identify potential weaknesses in your house. And damn, man, home defense? Yeah, have a home defense plan. Locking the internal door to your house isn't a bad idea if you live in a room or an apartment or a complex with a whole bunch of people. Why would you do that? And here's what I wonder about the Idaho killings. Those girls that survived on the first floor, maybe they survived because they locked their internal door. If you're a a bad guy and you're looking to 
methodically and surreptitiously go through the house and murder people and you get to a door and it's locked internally and you don't want to make a lot of noise, you're going to bypass that door. So having the internal doors locked as well could be an advantageous thing to do uh, to be more secure. I have a pistol that's used for home defense bedside locked in a pine world box, which is a biometrics box that allows me access, but it doesn't allow my kids to get access to it, but allows me private access in a minute. Uh, hell, I have one right here. This is this. You can't really see it because it's out of camera view, but I have a SIG. Uh, this is the M18, which is the compact version of the 320 mil spec version, but I lock it here in this biometric locked system where kids can't pull it out, but I could just you could hear it unlock, pull it out for my security. So these things are important to pay attention to, but paying attention is the first line of defense in surviving. Um, it's it's something that we've forgotten uh, as part of our uh, primal instincts in survival, and we just turn it off because it's easier to be on our phone and in our social media apps. Um, hey, this, this thing just happened recently in the last couple of days, an active shooting at a gay nightclub in Colorado Springs. And as of a couple of days ago, the Walmart um, in Chesapeake, Virginia, where a person, a manager, walked into an employee shift meet and started gunning people down. Nobody knows the motive uh, as of now, but wound up killing six people. Now, what can you do in situations where you have the time versus the situations where you don't have the time? One thing I found interesting is in the interview of one of the girls that was inside of that meeting as uh, he unloaded his pistol and started killing people was she, in the initial shooting, thought that what she was witnessing wasn't real until she saw her friend. This is her story, uh, not me making it up. She's, she witnessed her friend on the ground bleeding from a gunshot wound to her neck and then switched on and realized, hey, this is real. This is really happening. That is the first part of the process that you go through when your central nervous system shifts from a parasympathetic rest and digest to a fight or flight and a sympathetic response to allow you to survive. Because you're perceiving things and you're going, this isn't real. And then you have to switch on what she did, realizing that it is real. She, she claims that he went one way and she went the other way, praying as she was running away that she would survive. And she winded up surviving. Now, it's, it's luck because she, uh, the bullet passed her head by a mere inches, as she claimed. But when he went left, she went right. And she was in a fight or flight mode, moving as fast as possible. These are things that you can do in the immediate response of reacting to something that takes place like this. So what you can do is realize that what you're witnessing isn't fireworks, firecrackers, uh, what you're perceiving isn't fantasy, it's real, and then have a plan of action to break contact. Usually time, distance, and navigating away, putting as many obstacles between yourself and the bad situation is a good protocol in any instance of catastrophe. So this helped her escape this scenario. And yeah, there was a combination of luck, but if she just froze in place, went to her knees and cowered in fear, she could have been the seventh victim of this gunman who winded up killing himself inside of the Walmart. It's tragic. It's tragic. Now, a lot of media jumped the gun 
literally and figuratively, um, talking about gun control and active shooting. And I find that fascinating. Um, one, because we talk about this concept of active shooting, which via, depending on the industry you talk to, whether it's media, the FBI, the list goes on, an active shooting involves three or more, depending on who you talk to, three or more victims. But they're not talking about the multiple victims from inner city violence across the country. That's rampant. Active shootings, which there's one a day, according to the statistics in America, compared to inner city violence, where dozens of people are murdered in every major metropolitan city during the week. Um, Those victims aren't really talked about because it's inner city you know, whether it's black on black, gang on gang or gang violence, period. We're not talking about that. So is it an epidemic of gun violence? No, it's not. It's an epidemic of behavioral uh, issues and psychology of people doing bad things. I mean, how much coverage did the guy who ran into a parade and murdered a whole bunch of people with his car get? or the guy who just drove through a whole bunch of cadets and then was released get. Uh, A lot of these things that we're talking about, we don't focus on the actual problem, we focus on the symptom. The symptom is um, people are murdered and killed, a knife, a gun, a car, whatever you want to call it, but we're not focused on the actual problem. The actual problem is mental health crisis across the country that's seen in not only violence with weapons or tools, but also overdosing, suicide, drug addiction, uh, homelessness, poverty. The list goes on and on and on. We're putting Band-Aids on hatchet wounds here. So a lot of the issues that we should be paying attention to are the problem and the root of that problem to include um, man, to improve a, a lot of people are disaffected because of social media, because of losing their jobs, because of um, you name it. I mean, taking kids out of school, we're already seeing some of the statistics come out of that, where there's a whole bunch of teen suicide statistics that are like, man, these kids are killing themselves. Um, anyways, I digress. Um, let's talk a little bit about what you could do in Um, these circumstances where you do have um, an active shooter or or a situation where you perceive an active shooter in the vicinity of you. So let's say you're somebody in that Walmart and you hear something where what, what your first line of defense is, is using the senses to measure the environment because it's typically people and environments that dictate whether or not you're going to break contact, stay in that environment, and potentially fight through it um, and fight or flight, right? So if you're in an environment and you're trying to gain better situational awareness and perceiving threats before they become a threat, the, the thing that we teach is hands and demeanor. Hands tell often the story, but it's not the complete story, right? Hands hold the tool, the gun, the knife, but they tell the intent through our assessment of their demeanor. So let's say you're in an act of shooting and something goes wrong, horribly wrong, and you're running around and you're trying to identify what's good, what's bad, uh, identifying friend from foe, uh, trying to break contact to an exit. Well, let's say you come across a guy with a gun. Well, if you train to script this process 
and you shoot targets of bad guys that you perceive because they have guns, well, that's not the cognitive uh, understanding that you're going to need to actually think through that process. So if you just shoot uh, every target with a gun, you're not thinking through the process, especially if the gun's just being held, right? Because if a good Samaritan or a responsible citizen, as we would call it, has a gun, they might be on your side. So you have to assess demeanor. And how do we assess demeanor? Well, it's body language, right? It's the gesturing of the hands and body, the face, facial features and how they are telling the full story. If you see a, a person with a gun and they're shooting indiscriminately at innocent people, well, their demeanor is obviously telling me, their behavior is obviously telling me they're bad. But if you run down an aisle and you see a person holding a gun and they're holding it looking and trying to assess where there are potential threats, they might be on your side. So when you go into different environments, what we're looking for is the spike in the graph, right? As we're assessing this information, the spike in the graph hones us in and then further attention is needed to assess whether something is a threat or non-threat. So when we're going into a restaurant, when we're going to a Walmart, when we're going to a hospital, whatever the environment is, if we're going into that environment and we're trying to assess, we need to scan. Observation is a conscious and deliberate act. It's not just seeing, it's looking. So as I'm looking, I'm looking for hands and demeanor. Now, it would be cumbersome for you to walk into a restaurant and scan left to right as you walk in the entrance and scan hands demeanor, hands demeanor, hands demeanor. It would make your family very uncomfortable. It would take you a lot of time. It wouldn't be very uh, consistent with trying to be, I don't know, fitting into your environment, the gray man. So how can you do it? Well, you go into a restaurant, you scan left to right, and as you're scanning, you're looking for anomalies or spikes in the pattern. Those spikes are going to tell you the story. So let's say you, you, you sweep across the room and you see a guy, and his demeanor stands out to you. He looks paranoid. He looks like he's looking around, he's sweating, you can see the sweat off his brow. Well, does that mean you need to confront him? Does that mean you need to be involved? No, it just means you need to pay him more attention than everybody else because he's the spike in the graph. As you do that, you start looking at hands and demeanor. What are, what are his hands doing? Is he looking at his cell phone? Is he reaching into his pocket? Are his hands in his pocket? Uh, does he look aggressive? Does he look angry? Um, one of the things that we used in the book as an example was this Dallas Mavericks game. There was an environmentalist group that was going to go in during the halftime show and create a spectacle for media. Uh, one of the Timberwolves owners owns a poultry operation. They were going to run in there. Uh, she had a referee costume underneath her jacket. She was going to rip it down, and then she was going to call a foul and eject the Timberwolves coach from the game. There were two of them. One was surveilling um, and had her camera and prepared to capture the moment. And the other gal was prepared to be the actor uh, in the event. So what was the demeanor hits? What was their hands and demeanor telling the security official on the sidelines? Well, one, they weren't engaged in the game. Normal basketball fans are engaged in the game. Two, the person who was doing the filming and recording, which is normal at a basketball game, turned it panoramic-wise and started honing on the court, and there was nothing going on. 
Three, the person started looking around and looked like she was about to act. And so when the security official, which is a female, witnessed this, as soon as she started to bolt towards the court, she was able to take a couple steps and tackle her and pancake her to the court because she had situational awareness. Not only was she prepared mentally, but physically, she had a plan. Now, what was that plan? She probably rehearsed it or modeled it in her mind, but she had a plan. So a lot of people teach proactive or offensive tactics and have a plan. Be prepared to draw that pistol and go to work. For me, with my family, with my kids, I'm not going to do that. I want to displace the innocent lives that are with me who aren't potentially going to be an asset and more of a liability and potentially in more in harm's way because they're children. I want to get them off the X. So we teach this procedure of breaking contact off the X. So let's say you go into the restaurant and you witness that person who stands out to you as being a potential threat. Well, if they're a potential threat because of their demeanor, because we love to be curious, we want to be that cat that's so curious that it gets us killed. We want to capture it on our cell phone. We want to get it on Twitter. We want to get it on Instagram. You are setting yourself up for failure. The best strategy as soon as you witness a potential hazard or a threat is to break contact, notify the authorities if it warrants that, and get as far away distance, time, and obstacles between you and the disaster or potential disaster as you can. That's my rule of thumb. It's part of uh, the chapter that we cover in, um, in this uh, book called Prepared. Now, uh, I just got back out of a hunt in Wyoming. Uh, I'm putting the after action report on my uh, uh, Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash Mike Glover um, uh, for, uh, for all the tiered groups, tier one, tier two, and tier three. Um, I like to do that because I want people to be tuned in to the mistakes that I make and anything that I could do better in my hunts. Some uh, guy made a comment. It was like, oh, great. Here we go. Mike's getting into duck hunting, and he's going to try to – this stormtrooper is going to try to educate us on how to hunt. Look, I'm, I'm not here I – don't, I don't get paid to educate you on how to hunt because uh, the, the reality is I'm a hunter, but I'm not the best hunter on the planet. You know, if you want to be educated on how to hunt, pay attention to John Dudley, to Cameron Haynes. I'm a guy who likes to hunt. I have a hunter mindset. And I want to teach you through my experiences because I think it's important in how we educate people on self-reliance. Being prepared is about being self-reliant, right? There's too much dependence right now on too many things, including the U.S. government, the institutions between the government and us. And we don't realize that there are a lot of opportunities, including hunting, for us to disconnect cut the umbilical cord, and be more self-reliant. Like um, some people were like, oh, it's unrealistic for you to think that you could just cut the grocery store off. Uh, really? I mean, besides yogurts and, and some of the things that I get my kids, um, I don't have to depend on the grocery store at all. I mean, I got soap that's homemade because Ben Walker Trading Company, we sell that soap. That's my company. We sell that uh, soap online. The the origin story of that soap is it's a veteran-owned company, and we make it. Um, the chicken that exists in my backyard times nine plus the two ducks provides me adequate protein that allows me to get that protein in the morning for my family. Uh, 
the coffee that I get from Black Rifle Coffee that comes from a veteran-owned company where I know where the beans come from. I know the process. I know the people. Um, the meat that I harvest where, you know, harvesting that meat, getting the burger, getting the, the loin, getting the, uh, all the meat in my freezer is going to provide adequate amounts of protein that are going to feed my family for years to come. So I don't have to be dependent. Now, do I have to go to the gas station to get gas? Yeah, I have to do that. But I want you to start somewhere. And hunting is a good place to start. A big shout out to CJ and the outfitter out in Wyoming that provided me the opportunity to hunt, courtesy of Andy. Andy got the call. He wanted to invite me and him to go do this conservation tag. And I scored a uh, beautiful bull elk. He was in a herd of 200 elk when I was able to take him from about 400 yards. We ranged him um, at, you know, three to 400 yards. It was about 400 yards. Um, and I took two shots on him, the second shot puncturing his chest wall and putting him down. Uh, very ethical kill, 300 wind mag on a custom gun. I wish I wish I had a SIG Cross 300 wind mag. It's still in development. Um, but if you know a good um, 300 wind mag company, I want a custom gun suppressed. I was using a proof barrel on a custom McMillan stock with a surgeon action. Um, but I want the lightest 300 wind mag that's the most accurate for hunting in the backcountry. And the gun I had was was great, but it was just a little bit too heavy. Uh, I want a lighter one. So if you if you know of a company uh, or a custom builder, let me know in the comments below or hit me up on my email at mike.philcraft at gmail.com. Um, guys, let me give you a couple updates to December Black Rifle Coffee Company. I'll be in Dallas, Texas. I'm teaching the third and fourth in Dallas, Texas at Gritter, which is a local indoor range that we partner with. Uh, and I'll be there to December teaching a survival seminar. You can go on philcraftsurvival.com and sign up for that. Also, Las Vegas, 10 December at the Vegas Pro Gun Club. Uh, I'll be teaching out there just a pistol course, flying out there for the day. Uh, Lee Busby, uh, a friend of mine who works for Tier Tactical, a former special operations guy, will be there on site as well. Looking forward to catching up with Lee. Also, on 7 and 8 January, I know this is pretty far out, uh, 17 uh, December, I'll be teaching a survival seminar here in Heber City. But on 7 and 8 January, I'll be in Granite Falls teaching pistol and carbine with Greg Anderson's group, uh, and I apologize, I don't remember the name of the group, but he has his own group, including jiu-jitsu, CrossFit, and his own tactical group where he trains local civilians, which is great. Um, I love the fact that people are doing that, especially good people like Greg Anderson. So come out and see me northeast of Seattle on 7 and 8 January in Granite Falls. It's going to be cold as balls, but who cares? Like, Let's go out and train, have fun. It's going to be a good time. I'm looking forward to it. Also, I just released a new program that's 12 weeks long with Amber, our family preparedness director, that's all about getting you prepared in your household. Family preparedness. People are going, why do you need a 12-week program? Well, it's easy because preparedness, especially family preparedness, and all of its complexities requires a comprehensive plan of action. PDFs, checklists, Zoom calls, educators, experts, all of that stuff we're going to be providing in that program, which is named 62 because we're only taking 62 households uh, for that program. And the, uh, the Act of 1862, the Homestead Act of 1862, how sweet and how fitting that 
the government was able to, uh, I don't know, dupe people into uh, going or heading out west to get their acreage to be able to build and evolve um, American settlers who were building their American dreams. A lot of the ranches, a lot of the land, including land that I partook on um, in hunting in Wyoming, um, did so because of the act of 1862 that did that. So the 62 uh, program with Amber, 12-week program is live on com. Heber City, Utah, Aberdeen, and Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas at Gritter, we will be doing responsible citizen courses every Wednesday and weekend courses every weekend. I want you to come out and see us. Uh, I'm teaching almost every month here in Heber City, Utah, and I want you to make the trip. Come out and see us at a pro shop. We're going to be selling guns. We buy sell guns, as, uh, buy and sell guns at Heber City, Utah. And we're going to be teaching, whether it's survival seminars, canning, jarring, survival, tactical courses, personal defense and protection, all of that across the country. Last but not least, if you haven't listened to Kevin Owens' podcast, shameless plug for Kevin Owens, it's a great podcast. I don't listen to many podcasts, and Kevin Owens, I've known him for decades, uh, one of my best friends. I listen to his podcast because it's so interesting and that accent is awesome. Um, go on to uh, wherever podcasts are fine and put found and put in Kevin Owens and you'll find his podcast. Great podcast to tune into. Guys, appreciate you tuning in. YouTube, um, subscribe, hit the notification tab. And if you're listening, go watch. If you're watching, go listen. You know, do both. Uh, I hope I'm providing you some value uh, on these podcasts. We're trying to keep them down to 30, 40 minutes for your daily commute. Um, because I want to fit it all in there in the daily commute. Uh, appreciate you, lis you listening, and um, until next time, stay alert, stay alive, guys. Peace out.